Welcome, everyone, to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Here we go, you guys. I feel like I've been saying you guys too much. Mm, welcome. Welcome back to another episode of the Two Tongues Podcast. So I brought up the phrase you guys, and I'll just add on to that. I've always been very reluctant to use the phrase y'all. You know? I'm not from the South. You might have noticed from my accent. But uh, it never seemed like a good, like, a, like a, a very effective word, y'all. People who use the word y'all use it way too much, and his, think, his sentence structure stops to make sense. Uh, stops making sense. Listen to me. Anyway, you guys has been my uh, alternative to that since I was a kid. It's just not. It's just not a professional, not a very professional uh, phrase. You guys. I don't know if y'all's better though. I don't know if y'all's better. It makes me think of uh, the Goonies. Hey, you guys. Anybody? Anybody? Goonies. Okay. All right. Never mind. So, uh, welcome back to the Two Tongues Podcast. Today is a very special podcast, not because of the content necessarily, although I hope you find it interesting. It's because I've been promising this episode for some time, and I keep apologizing for it. <clears throat> so, today's going to be Chalmers Conscious Mind Part 2. Bah, bah, bah. I hope you're excited. I hope you're excited about it. Um, okay, so <clears throat> when we did the first part of Chalmers Conscious Mind, um, we were talking about the hard problem of consciousness, and I've said that, I've explained that a few times recently, so, you know, apologies. But I thought it would be a good idea to recap a little bit, because it's been a few weeks. So, Chalmers talks about science approach to trying to understand consciousness, the human mind, the human brain, how it's all connected, all that stuff. And he uses uh, different words. He says there's, a, there's an easy problem, and he calls that a psychological problem. And then there's a hard problem, which he calls a phenomenal problem. So just to give you the the down and dirty here, when he says psychological, he's talking about how the brain works, um, how it generates states of mind, states of consciousness, emotions, how it's all connected, all the nuts and bolts of what's going on in your brain and in your body that allows you to behave, that allows you to perceive, you know, all the stuff that you think about when you think of qualities of being alive all of them except for consciousness so that's a weird thing but the psychological what he calls the easy problem is figuring out how the brain works how it how it maps how the neurons and the activity in your brain map onto your behavior how it can be, be manipulated um you know all of the by the biochemical stuff going on and the electrical stuff going on in your brain and in your body and your nervous system and all that and uh, understanding how that 
creates the behavior that we display. So you could like think about the human being as a machine and uh, take the you know conscious part out. And if you can understand everything about the machine and how it works, even though it's super, super complicated, that's what he calls the easy problem. All those problems are psychological. That's the word he uses to describe them. It doesn't sound very easy, but when you compare it to the hard problem, he's like, look, it's way different. It's on a whole different scale. So the hard problem is associated with phenomenal properties. That's not the machine. It's not figuring out how the brain works, how the electro-biochemical signals work. Um, It's not any of that stuff. It's given all of that stuff. What is going on exactly that causes you to have an experience of it? Right? It's one thing for a machine to be doing what a machine does. It's another thing for the machine to be aware that it's doing the things it's doing. Right? You wouldn't, you wouldn't say that your computer knows what it's doing. It just does what it does. You wouldn't say that uh, any mechanism, any machine whatsoever is aware of what it's doing. The machines that make, you know whatever linens the machines that the machines that make uh, computer chips whatever any kind of mechanistic um, object it just does what it does it's programmed you know we in the computer age understand programming right that's not what he's talking about he's talking about why any of that any of that activity comes along with a sensation at all with a feeling of what what the machine is doing, right? Um, there's a phrase that's sometimes used to talk about this. It's called the ghost in the machine. So if anybody knows uh, the ghost in the machine. Anyway, so the, these phenomenal qualities, these are things that um, Chalmers calls qualia. They're the things that can't be explained by the machine and the, and the activity inside the machine. Those are things like our experience of pain, you know, our our experience of color sensations you know these are the examples that he'll bring up it's like there there really isn't something in the world that's cor- that corresponds to color it's it's an experience of color that's unexplainable um even if you know all about optics and all about colors absorbing and reflecting and all that sort of thing if you know all of that it still doesn't explain the experience of a color. And we're going to talk about that in more detail. He does a better job of it. So, uh, But pain, I think, that I mentioned, it's also a good example. Uh, and we used this example before, but you could have like a super highly intelligent AI robot that injures itself and knows that it's been injured. It recognizes it, and it heals because it must. And all of that stuff you could see in a human being who cuts his finger and realizes that he's injured, and his body goes to work healing it. And you think that those examples maybe are identical, but the difference is that when the AI robot injures himself and receives the signal that he's been injured, he he doesn't experience pain. He just knows he's been injured. That's the hard problem. What in the Sam hell is pain? That why? How is it that we feel it at all? How is it that we have any sort of inner experience that corresponds to anything going on in ourselves or outside of ourselves? It's completely unexplainable. So that's the hard problem. So that's a good recap. Chalmers is going to focus a lot on the hard problem. That's what, he's, that's what he wants to explain because that's what he thinks is still unexplainable. So there's one other 
word that comes up that's going to come up today that a lot that we're going to have to talk about is he's going to introduce this idea called supervenience. Supervenience. All right, so there's a vocabulary word for you guys. Uh, I I hit on this a little bit in the, in the prior podcast just to say that I got introduced to this idea, and David Chalmers goes on nearly 100 pages trying to describe what it is, um, but it's the very beginning of the argument that he's going to make that says consciousness is unexplainable, at least in the traditional sense. You know, um, it, it requires an explanation, and the explanation is not something that is familiar to us. It's, it's not like we can use what he's going to call a reductive explanation for consciousness. It can't be explained in the normal way. So there's a mystery to it, and he's recognizing that. That's why he calls it the hard problem. So this word supervenience, if you remember uh, what I said about it before, it just means that properties depend on other properties. That's what to supervene means. It means that they rely on other properties exclusively. So it's like this. This is the example. If you know all of the physical facts of the world, and by physical facts he means... If you knew if you knew where all the matter was and all the energy was and how it's moving and what it's doing, if you know about all the electrons and the protons and the energy in the fields of energy and interactions, if you know all about that, that that's all you need to know to determine other facts, right? So if you know all of the physical facts, that tells you everything you need to know about biological facts. So that's a it's a good example. I know it's not quite clear yet, but but basically in a nutshell, what he's saying is. You can look at how you know biology works, about the chemical processes that go on in your cells, about how cells form, about how they do, how they replicate, reproduce, um, you know, all that stuff, and all of that stuff flows logically from what we know about protons, electrons, neutrons, energy fields, and all the stuff that you know, gravity, and all the other, all the other things, all of the laws and the material that's in the cosmos doing what it's doing. Um, that once we know those basic facts. The more complicated, higher-level facts about biology, they, they just are a given. Like, it could be no other way. Um, and I think most scientifically-minded people would agree with that or want to agree with that. That if we, if we know everything that's happened from the Big Bang up till now, um, we have an explanation for, for everything else that's happened, you know, based on those very basic, high-level uh, facts, physical facts, quantum facts, that kind of thing. Um, and I think that this argument that we're going to, we're going to hear from Chalmers today, I think there's an analogy that will help me to talk about it. It's not a perfect analogy, but I think it'll help me to make this make sense, at least to me, hopefully to you as well. So there's this philosophical debate. Um, it's not really about consciousness, but I think it's related, at least it's related enough that this is going to go over, I think. Um, it's about free will. And people ask, especially philosophers, they'll ask, do people have free will? Um, you know, what does that even mean? It's like, do we have a right, not a right, do we have the ability to choose? Or is all the conditions that have led us up to the point where we're making a decision, are all of those things kind of colluding to make my decision for me? Like, I'm not really free to make a decision one way or the other. I'm actually predisposed to, to decide X over Y every single time. And if you know everything about me 
from the time I was born until I, the time I'm making a decision. That's all you need to know to know how I would choose. It's called determinism. So this is the idea of determinism versus free will. Uh, are we able to make a choice? Or are we fooling ourselves, only thinking that we're able to make a choice? And really, our choices are predetermined by all the things we've experienced and the, the place where we came from and all the conditions of our lives up to that point that we really don't have a choice. I don't know where you fall on that. I think most people like to think we have free will. But I think there's a good, compelling argument both ways. Um, firstly, it's it feels, it seems like we have free will. So... I, I believe that it's you know that's what how it seems to me, um, but it's also a compelling argument to say that somebody who had a hard life and never had love and support, let's say, that, that person didn't really have much of a choice. Let's say if they became a criminal, you know what I mean. It's like, do we really blame them when their family failed them and society failed them, and uh, you know their choices were limited, and now they're now they're predetermined to be a criminal? Like, how can we how can we hold them accountable for that? So, there's some argument there too. I think it it it's going to map. So let me just kind of let me just kind of talk through this with you. All right. So, do I do I act according to laws that are formed? partly by nature and partly by nurture. So like my my biology, my environment, the conditions that I was brought up in, um, you know, all, all sorts of things like that. Or am I a creature that gets to choose, that has free will in spite of my nature and nurture? Can a criminal be rehabilitated? That, that might be a way of asking it. Did a criminal even have a choice in becoming a criminal? That was a question we brought up earlier. Was it preordained? You know? Um, if I grew up in an abusive household and, um, you know, my grandpa, you know, abused my dad and my dad abused me, let's say, hypothetically, what's the likelihood I'm going to be behaving that way to my kids? And then I could ask, how responsible am I for that? Because it, you know, it's easy to pass the buck, and you can see where the buck came from. It came from granddad. It came from dad. And I'm just following that pattern. Did I ever have a choice? You know, when I go to raise my kids, am I going to do that just like I was taught? Just like was done to me? Well, you can see the likelihood there is pretty good. You know, it would take quite the person to avoid that um, uh Pattern, right? It would take quite the person to push back against it and to make a different decision. The question of whether it's even possible to make a different decision, you know, that's a good question. And you might you might think this is all this is all just a kind of an interesting thought argument, but in the 1920s, there was a court case in the United States, a really famous court case, the Leopold and Loeb case, if anybody knows the story. Uh, the attorney involved was a guy named Clarence Darrow. Clarence Darrow, if you remember, if you remember that name, you probably remember it from from the Scopes Monkey Trial. So again, in the twenties, the United States having an, having an argument goes all the way to the Supreme Court. I'm pretty sure uh, about whether evolution should be taught in schools. That was the Scopes Monkey Trial, and Clarence Darrow was one of the attorneys in that trial. So he was a big name guy. 
he gets brought in for a murder case called Leopold and Loeb. And the story is basically this. You got these two wealthy Ivy League school university students. Both of them came from money, lots of money. They're going to, you know, a prestigious university. They got high IQs. That's the profile we're talking about. So these two 20-somethings end up kidnapping and murdering a 14-year-old kid. And it's not clear to me the reasons for that, for why they did that, but what's been said is that these two guys, Leopold and Loeb, that they believed that they were smart enough, that they could do whatever they wanted and get away with it. So murdering this kid might have just been an experiment uh, to see if that were true. Uh, I don't know, that argument doesn't hold to me a whole lot of um, appeal. I don't know if I would if I would believe it, but that's kind of the way, you might say that's the media spin on the story. So they needed a high-name uh, high attorney, and they needed a smart guy. They hired Clarence Darrow. Clarence Darrow comes in, and he, he argues from determinism. He comes in, and he literally argues with a jury exactly what I was just trying to describe to you. He says, he says, Leopold and Loeb can't be held accountable even though they are guilty. What? He actually argued that. So you might, you might wonder, why? If these people are guilty, what in the world, what argument could you possibly make to say they, they shouldn't be held accountable? Because, according to Darrow, and according to determinism, they could not have acted any other way. Right? How can they be responsible for their decisions if they couldn't have acted any other way? The conditions of their upbringing, the experiences they had in their life, up to that point, um, that determined what they were going to do in this situation, that they didn't actually have free will. <laughs> that is what Clarence Darrow argued. He said that their nature and their nurture, you know, privilege and resources, that those things preordained their actions. They didn't have a choice. In that situation, they were going to murder that kid, and they didn't have a choice. They always got what they wanted. They're rich kids, right? They were accustomed to getting out of trouble, of avoiding serious consequences because of their status and because of their parents, Right? They believed themselves untouchable and free to do whatever they wished. If you were brought up in such a state, you'd be conditioned to believe that you too can do anything you like. Right? They never had a choice. Right? See, it's a difficult argument because both sides make sense. You can see how somebody might be predisposed. Maybe it's easier to think about that from somebody who, let's say, uh, came from low means rather, rather than from somebody that came from privilege. You know, maybe that, maybe that goes over a little better. It's a little bit more palatable. Somebody who grew up poor and abused and, and so forth uh, might be more likely to act out in a certain way that you might call criminal. And you might argue that they didn't have much of a choice because of the conditions of their life. You know, that you can see that. There's some logic there. It doesn't sound wrong. But at the same time, when Leopold and Loeb, or when the, you know, the homeless person, let's say, goes up to the ATM and pulls pulls the gun out and, and steals the money from the from the 
you know, citizen, <laughs> citizen trying to get money out of the ATM. In that moment, when they're making that decision, do they have the ability to say, I'm going to do this or I'm not going to do this? Is, is, it, is there free will? Do they have a choice in that moment? So that's a good question. I don't, I don't know exactly. A better, a better question might be, how could you tell the difference? <laughs> All right, so this analogy, I think, it maps well onto how Chalmers will build his argument about the inexplicability of consciousness. So like the determinists, Chalmers proposes a metaphorical zombie twin. So it's, you're, we're considering Chalmers himself, the Aust- Australian philosopher, and his zombie twin. His zombie twin is identical to him in every way. It looks like he looks. It acts like he acts. It exists in the same environment as him. But the zombie has no free will. It has no consciousness. Chalmers, on the other hand, seems indistinguishable from his zombie twin. But he is conscious. How could you tell the difference? Same question. How could you tell the difference? All right, so I think that is a good intro. And that leads us in to Chalmers' Conscious Mind Part 2. Here we go. Chalmers says this to recap the hard problem. He says, The division of mental properties into phenomenal and psychological has the effect of dividing the mind-body problem into two. The easy part and the hard part. The psychological aspects of mind pose many technical problems for cognitive science but they pose no deep metaphysical enigmas. The question, how could a physical system be the sort of thing that could learn or could remember? He says the phenomenal aspects of mind are a different matter. The impressive progress of the physical and cognitive sciences has not shed significant light on the question of how and why cognitive functioning is accompanied by conscious experience. The hardest part of the mind-body problem is the question, how could a physical system give rise to conscious experience? Why all the stimulation and reaction associated with pain is accompanied by the experience of pain, for instance. So this is exactly what we talked about earlier. We have... We have... certain problems that, even though we don't have the answers to we can imagine learning the answers to. Like, all the stuff we don't understand about how the brain works, yet. All the stuff we don't understand about how the electro, electrical chemical signals work, right, in your brain and your body. It's all very complicated. But if we keep at the problem, if we keep chipping away, chipping away, we, we get better, you know, scientific equipment and, and all that, eventually we're going to be able to figure out all of that, hypothetically. And even if we do, even if we figure out all the psychological stuff and we, and we solve the easy problem of consciousness, then what we're going to have is a detailed explanation as to how cognitive functioning works, how your brain works, and, and how it's related to your behavior. But what is it not going to answer, even when we have the easy problem solved? Knowing all of that stuff and what it's doing, Chalmers says, 
How could a physical system give rise to conscious experience? Why is there experience connected or associated with the functioning of your brain? If it's just a machine, if it's just a mechanism, cause and effect, all that, why has any of that stuff happened to correspond to something going on inside of us? A feeling. It's an interesting question. All right, he goes on. He's talking about different types of psychological consciousness. So we did this with, with phenomenal consciousness in the, in the first part, talking about what he meant when he was talking about these unexplainable phenomena, things like the sensation of pain or the experience of color, um, you know, all of those sorts of things. Um, another good one is like, um, you know, like an itch, you know? It's like you feel an itch, something so arbitrary as an itch. And it's like, okay, there's something going on in your skin, maybe with the hair follicle, I don't know. There's something going on that's causing this sensation. And mechanically, that's all fine and good. You can understand, you know, what's going on physically with your, with your body. But why should there be a feeling associated with it? Just because something's happening, you know, on your leg, something arbitrary that doesn't matter <laughs> a whole lot, and you reach down and you scratch it. You know, what? why... Why does there need to be a feeling in between the 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 event and you scratching it? You know, why does there have to be something in between them that's an experience inside of your head that's unexplainable? Because we know that because we create computers and highly sophisticated artificial intelligence, and we still can't recreate consciousness. So there's a mystery there. On the psychological side of things, he's talking about things like. Awakeness, you know, um, introspection, the ability to kind of think about yourself, reportability, the ability to be able to, to talk about your experiences, um, attention, you know, being able to focus your attention, um, voluntary control and knowledge, you know, even something like knowledge. How do we, how do we come to learn things? How do we, how do we come to learn things and retain uh, memories of them so we can use that knowledge in the future. These all seem, you know, like hard problems to figure out mechanically how they all work. And, and they all do seem to depend on consciousness in some way. But these, according to Chalmers, are things that we could understand by solving the easy problem. We can understand what, what awakeness means, you know, uh, biophysiologically. Biophysi we could explain what introspection or attention uh, and, and even knowledge, we could, we could explain all of the nuts and bolts of how that works. He goes on, he says, there is a, cert there is a certain sort of phenomenal state associated with self-consciousness. The same goes for introspection, attention, and voluntary control of behavior. So here he's just pointing out that even when you look at these, you know, potentially strange ideas, like trying to understand what, awakeness means or attention means or voluntary control of your behavior that all of those sorts of things also have a phenomenal state associated with them he's saying look there's something that it's like to be awake it's not like you're booting, you're turning the computer on and it's and it's awake no 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 there's there's something different about being on about being alive and about being awake awake feels like something knowledge feels like something and that's the mystery. Why in the fuck does it feel like something? All right, he says, 
it's natural to suppose that there might be a psychological property associated with experience itself or with phenomenal consciousness. In fact, I think there is a property in the vicinity. We call it awareness. This is the most general brand of psychological consciousness. Awareness. So I told you guys before, I'm uh, starting to read uh, another book about psychedelics and consciousness by uh, Dr. Uh, Sote Hughes. He uses the word sentience, which I think I like better. Um, I think that's a pretty good analogy, where Chalmers is talking about awareness being this sort of really basic type of consciousness or a, a basic way of describing it. Um, but sentience, that might be, a, a, might be a better word. He goes on, he says, In general, wherever there is phenomenal consciousness, there seems to be awareness. My phenomenal experience of the yellow book beside me is accompanied by my functional awareness of the book, and indeed by my awareness of the yellow color. My experience of a pain is accompanied by an awareness of the presence of something nasty, which tends to lead to withdrawal and the like, where possible. The fact that any conscious experience is accompanied by awareness is made clear by the fact that, that a conscious experience is reportable. If I am having an experience, I can talk about the fact that I am having it. This reportability immediately implies that I am aware in the relevant sense. Consciousness is always accompanied by awareness, but awareness, as I have described it, need not be accompanied by consciousness. One can be aware of a fact without any particular associated phenomenal experience, for instance. So I'm not sure I, I'm not sure I agree entirely with that, but I think it's an, it's an interesting point that he's making uh, when he says that consciousness is always accompanied by awareness, but awareness need not be accompanied by consciousness. Um, and I, I guess the way I would frame that would be something like um, there's... I guess I'm I'm trying to imagine a computer again. I'm trying to imagine something something that's mechanical that we would agree doesn't have consciousness. Um, that you know, for instance, a computer might be scanning something. It's hard to imagine that, um, at least in the in the um, uh, ones and zeros in the computer, that it's not aware in a sense that there's data there and that it's uh, you know scanning that data. That code being running is something like awareness in this case. Um, but you can definitely understand that the computer is not conscious, even though you might be able to use the same vocabulary to say that it's aware. So there's something like that, I think, that it, the point that he's trying to make. He goes on, he says, The notion of awareness subsumes most or all of the various psychological notions of consciousness. Introspection can, can be analyzed as awareness of some internal state. Attention can be analyzed as a particularly high degree of awareness. Self-consciousness can be understood as awareness of oneself. So he's just giving more and more evidence of this idea that, that awareness or some, some, is some way of describing consciousness at the very base level um, because you can see how applicable it is in every single one of these instances. And then he says, even after we've explained the physical and computational functioning of a conscious system, we still need to explain why the system has conscious experience. So even ap even after we've understood everything about how the brain works and all this and and you know all the psychological stuff, the hard problem is still left over. It's still left unanswered. Uh, he says, while one can see how the methods of experimental psychology might lead to an understanding of the various kinds of awareness, 
it is not easy to see how they could explain phenomenal experience. So, again, even if we knew all the nuts and bolts and learned everything we could about the easy problem, and we knew about how the brain causes awareness and, and retains knowledge and, you know, all that stuff, if we learned all of that stuff, that we still don't have an answer to why those things are accompanied by an experience. It all boils down to experience. So interesting. So interesting from the perspective of the mystic experience, um, because that... Because that is something like, it does focus heavily on experience. It's almost like the, the, t- the biggest takeaway of the mystic experience is that the thing you are and the experience you're having are not different things. Uh, they, they kind of meld together. And so here, talking about consciousness, we're having the same kind of interesting um, pattern forming. So let's push on. He says, cognitive models are well-suited to explaining psychological aspects of consciousness. There is no vast metaphysical problem in the idea that a physical system should be able to introspect its internal states. Well, the example there, you know, for something that's not not conscious to be able to introspect, I think of like a computer defragging, like defragging its hard drive. What's it doing? It's scanning itself. Yeah, that you could call that introspection, right? That doesn't require consciousness. That that's interesting. He goes on. He says, or that it should be able to focus its attention first in one place and then in the next. But the really difficult problem is that of phenomenal consciousness, and this is left untouched by the explanations of psychological consciousness that I've put forward so far. So we're really dealing with a hard problem. He's saying even if we can make seriously huge strides in our understanding and in science, uh, we're still going to be left with no answer because there doesn't seem to be a connection between the what he calls the psychological consciousness and the phenomenal, the part that we would call our experience. It's not, it's not linked, seemingly. It's associated and correlated with the psychological stuff, but somehow it's separate. So let's, uh, let's get into why he thinks that's the case. That brings us to our next segment. It's called Supervenience and Explanation. So now we're going to get into Supervenience. You guys, this was the bit that was the most difficult in the book, so I've really pared it down. But here we go. He says, There is a complex variety of dependence relations between high-level facts and low-level facts. The philosophical notion of supervenience provides a unifying framework within which the, these dependence relations can be discussed. All right, so that's a really wordy way of saying that, uh, that some things depend on other things. He's, he's, he's saying some high-level facts depend on low-level facts. Um, and that's what he means by supervenience. That's what I tried to explain at the, at the beginning of this conversation, that if you know all of the physical facts, you can determine... Uh, you know any any of the of the higher level stuff you might want to you might want to understand you know bio, biological facts are a good example how did life evolve from non life and why does life do what it does for you to know the answers to those questions all you have to know is facts about quantum mechanics period facts about matter and energy and the laws of nature period and everything else flows from that in exactly the way it does and could be in no other way he says The notion of supervenience formalizes the intuitive idea that one set of facts can fully determine another. 
the physical facts about the world seem to determine the biological facts. For instance, in that once all the physical facts about the world are fixed, there is no room for the biological facts to vary. This provides a rough characterization of the sense in which biological properties supervene on physical properties. So they depend on physical properties. Okay, easy enough. He says, in general, supervenience is a relation between two sets of properties, the high level and the more basic low level. He says, for example, shape supervenes on physical properties. Any two objects with the same physical properties will necessarily have the same shape. Okay, so that makes sense, right? The physical properties, the properties that make a shape a shape, that make a square a square, the four even-sided uh, connected lines, right? Something like that. That anything that meets those physical properties will be that shape. So the idea of shape supervenes on physical properties. They depend on physical properties. Crystal clear. All right, Chalmers, what else you got? He says, phenomena such as hallucinations and illusions illustrate the fact that it is internal structure rather than context that is directly responsible for experience. Okay, that's, a, that's an interesting little tidbit to put in there. So he's saying hallucinations and illusions illustrate the fact that there's some internal structure that's more important in our experience than context. So you can look out at the world and you can see whatever you see. The experience you're having is not necessarily what's there, Right? Because if you were having a hallucination or an illusion, you would see something that's not there or that's not like what's actually there. So our experience is somehow dependent somehow on something internal rather than strictly on what's outside of ourselves. That's an interesting fact. An interesting place to put that fact, by the way. All right, he goes on, he says, at the global level, Biological properties supervene on physical properties. They depend on physical properties. He says, even God could not have created a world that was physically identical to ours, but biologically distinct. There's simply no logical space for the biological facts to independently vary. So I don't know if I go with that entirely, but, but it, it makes enough sense. He's saying, look, if all the laws of nature and the physical properties are identical from one world to another then if life evolves on one world, it will on the other. And not only that, it will be identical to what evolved on the other because all of the conditions are the same. He says, when we fix all the physical facts about the world, including the facts about the distribution of every last particle across space and time, we will, in effect, also fix the macroscopic shape of all the objects in the world, the way they move and function, the way they physically interact. He says, if there's a living kangaroo in this world, then any world that is physically identical to this, to this world will contain a physically identical kangaroo. Okay, well, I can't argue with the logic. Let's keep going. He says, it seems logically possible that a creature physically identical to a conscious creature might have no conscious experience at all, or that it might have conscious experience of a different kind. Okay, okay. So he's first making the argument that if something is physically identical, that it can't vary. It'll be the same in any context. Something that's physically identical, following the same laws, will be the same regardless. And then he says, but it's also possible that a creature that's physically identical to a conscious being, you couldn't distinguish the two, that might 
not be conscious at all. So now he's putting a little bit of a wrench in this problem. He's saying, you can't say the same thing for consciousness as you can say for all of the physical stuff about the world. And we're going to get into that thought experiment. That's the zombie experiment that I mentioned earlier. But I'm putting the cart before the horse. All right, he says this. He says, with this in mind, we can formulate precisely the widely held doctrine of materialism or physicalism which is generally taken to hold that everything in the world is physical or that the physical facts exhaust all the facts about the world. It's just the physical. He says, in our language, materialism is true if all the facts about the world are supervenient on the physical facts. Okay? So if you know all the physical facts, all the laws of matter and energy and all their placement and, and you know movement and interactions, if you know all of that stuff, then you, you know everything, you can deduce from that everything there is to know about the world. And that's the materialist perspective. That's the modern scientific perspective. The question he's raised here is, is that really the case if that can't explain consciousness? Maybe it can explain everything else. But if, it, if materialism can't explain consciousness, what does that mean? All right, so the next section is called Reductive Explanation. He says this, For almost every natural phenomenon above the level of microscopic physics, there seems in principle to exist a reductive explanation. That is, an explanation wholly in terms of simpler entities. In these cases, when we give an, an approximate account of lower-level processes, an explanation of higher-level phenomenon falls out. So he gives some examples. He says, Reproduction can be explained by giving an account of the genetic and cellular mechanisms that allow organisms to produce other organisms. Adaptation can be explained by giving an account of the mechanisms that lead to appropriate changes in external function in response to environmental stimulation. In physics, we explain heat by telling an appropriate story about the energy and excitation of molecules. Okay, so that seems to be what he means by a reductive explanation. If you have any question um, that you can simply explain by attributing it to smaller questions, in this case looking at things like you know, adaptation or uh, reproduction and saying, look, we have this complicated thing called reproduction with lots of, you know, complexity and unknowns, but we can break that down into these lower level um, facts, facts about genetics and about how cells work. And uh, those smaller bits will explain the larger bit. So, yeah, okay, that's a reductive explanation, and we can see the same thing, he says, in physics, looking at something so fundamental as heat. Uh, you know, what is heat? I don't know. It's a very difficult thing to, to, to describe exactly. Uh, but we can break it down and talk about how molecules moving more, more quickly, um, you know, is associated with this, with this thing we call heat. So, so these are reductive explanations that we generally have access to in explaining most things. And that's how he opens it up for almost every natural phenomenon. So, so what's being left out of that? Well, it's consciousness, and we're going to see more of it. So he goes on, he says, A natural phenomena is reductively explainable in terms of some low-level properties precisely when it is supervenient on those properties. 
it is reductively explainable in terms of physical properties when it is supervenient on the physical. Okay, so everything that depends on physics, on quantum mechanics, and how you know energy and, and particles at the smallest level, the laws that they follow and all that, um, if they depend on them, then we can explain them um, um, in that way. Uh, we can explain, explain them reductively. So if there's something that we can't explain reductively, that means it doesn't depend on the physical, that, well, now we're getting into some kind of mystical territory. If you're a scientist, what do you mean? What do you mean it, it doesn't supervene on the physical? Then what does it, what does it rely on, if not the physical laws of the universe? That's what, I'm, that's what David Chalmers is pointing out when he says there is a hard problem of consciousness. This is what he means. He goes on, he says... If the property of exemplifying a phenomenon fails to supervene on some lower-level properties, there will always be a further unanswered question. Why is the lower-level process accompanied by the phenomenon? So this is just a way of him to say what he's already said. Why does consciousness accompany any of these uh, cognitive operations, anything going on in your brain? He goes on, he says, A reductive explanation is not necessarily an, illumin an illuminating explanation. Rather, a reductive explanation is a mystery-removing explanation. Its chief role is to remove any deep sense of mystery surrounding a high-level phenomena. It does this by reducing the bruteness and arbitrariness of the phenomena to the bruteness and arbitrariness of lower-level processes. So this thing about heat that we talked about is a good example. Um, I asked this question in high school to my physics professor, uh, or teacher rather, I asked him about um, about fire, about um, you know the process that keep that sustains it and what's going on. And I asked him to you know I'm interested. Explain to me what's going on. And he was unable to. He was completely unable to because the questions I were asking were not questions about the physical necessarily. Um, and, and so this is the idea. You can get something that's hard to explain, like like heat or reproduction or uh, adaptation, which we've talked about. Um, and if you can break it down into smaller, more easily digestible bits, then all you, all you really have to do is point to them and say that's the explanation. Now, I'm not sh it's not clear to me that that really is an explanation because it seems like you can always point to, more, to smaller and you know, more fundamental processes, um, you know, maybe, maybe forever, or maybe until you reach the level of consciousness, which is what I would argue. But he's saying that it's not really an, a great explanation, that reductive explanations seem like good explanations. Like, oh, yeah, heat is caused by the molecules in, in the uh, object moving more quickly. Okay. But is that really an answer to what heat is? Some people would say yes. You know, heat equals faster-moving molecules. But that's not an illuminating explanation. It doesn't explain to you what the sensation of heat, what the experience of heat is at all. So this so he's pointing out that even these reductive explanations that science relies on that seem to be so convincing to us and are powerful in our understanding of things and our ability to manipulate the world, but they really aren't so satisfying as explanations. Um, because there's always something left unanswered and it's, you know, what you know what what causes them? What causes them? Um, we're going to get there in a bit, but he does talk about the laws of uh, physics um, in a little bit um, being mystical, mysterious, being something that that um, 
that might represent that bruteness and arbitrariness that can't be re- reduced any longer. And there's some things that we'll, we'll see that David Chalmers points to that they're interesting because he he straight up talks about it being mystical. You know, you got this re- really hard-nosed scientist, you got this philosopher who's very precise in his definitions and his thoughts, and there are times in this book where he just says a little bit of a shoulder shrug. Um, and I'll, I'll point them out when we when we get to them, but this is one of them. Him calling out that reductive explanations really aren't um, as solid as you might imagine. Next he says, what is most important is that if supervenience fails, as I will argue it does for consciousness, then any kind of, of reductive explanation fails. So what he's saying here is consciousness doesn't supervene on the physical. It, it doesn't depend on the physical laws of the universe, which he's going to try to prove to us. And as a result, you can't explain consciousness the way you can explain other things reductively. It's, it's impossible. You can't explain consciousness by breaking it down like you do in other physical um, uh, instances and point to the components of it. You can't do that. And so that's a, that's a mystery. All right, he says, a few further notes. First, a practical reductive explanation of a phenomena does not usually go all the way to the microphysical. Instead, high-level phenomena are explained in terms of some, some properties uh, at a slightly more basic level. In turn, one hopes that the more basic phenomena will themselves be reductively explainable in terms of something more basic still. If all goes well, biological phenomena may be explainable in terms of cellular phenomena, which are explainable in terms of biochemical phenomena, which are explainable in terms of chemical phenomena, which are explainable in terms of physical phenomena. As for the physical phenomena, one tries to unify these as far as possible, but at some level, physics has to be taken as brute. There may be no explanation of why the fundamental laws or boundary conditions are the way they are. So that's what I was referring to. I didn't think we were going to get to it so quickly. So he's like, look, in a perfect world, you can reductively explain everything going, going from the higher level, more complex structures and just going backwards and saying they rely on these more basic structures. They rely on even, even more basic structures. And you keep going all the way back until you get to the, the, the most basic facts of uh, physics, you know, quantum mechanics. You get there and he says, well, once you get there, there may be no explanation for why those fundamental laws are the way they are. Okay, so you can't, you can't reductively explain the laws of the universe. So that's a mystery. Why are there laws of the universe? Why do they operate the way they do? Um, why, do why do those laws control everything else? We, once we've gotten down to that most basic level, how do you reductively explain that? You can't break it down into anything else. It's the most fundamental thing there is. That's a mystery. Just like consciousness is a mystery. All right. This next section is called Almost Everything is Supervenient on the Physical. All right, he says, I will argue that conscious experience does not supervene on the physical and therefore cannot be reductively explained. Conscious experience is almost unique in its failure to supervene. The relationship between consciousness and the physical facts is different in kind 
from the standard relationship between high-level and low-level facts. So consciousness, according to Chalmers, is an entirely different animal. He says, I should note some reasons why supervenience on the physical sometimes fails. First, some high-level properties fail to supervene because of a dependence on conscious experience. Interesting. He says, perhaps conscious experience is partly uh, constitutive of a property like love, for example. Some external properties, such as color and heat, may also depend on phenomenal qualities. If so, then love, and perhaps heat, do not supervene on the physical. Perhaps the best way to phrase the claim is to say that all facts supervene on the combination of the physical and a phenomenal. Okay, so he's saying, he's making, going to make the argument, he's kind of starting here, that consciousness can't be reductively explained, that it doesn't supervene on the physical, it doesn't depend on the physical at all. We're going to see more about that in his zombie experiment that we're getting to. And he's like, look, we might want to explain why some things might not supervene on the physical. And the first, the first thing he gets to is that there, might be, that there might be experiences that depend on consciousness. You know, experiences that require consciousness, like love. You know, what, what would that even mean in the absence of consciousness? So, so there may be instances where something like consciousness is, is participating in the experience, and you can't have one without the other. And it's not just love. You know, he also mentions heat, the same thing we talked about before. You know, we can explain heat in all sorts of ways, but how do you explain the experience of it? Is that somehow part of its physical structure? doesn't seem that way. That seems like something going on inside each, each, of, our, each of our heads. Okay. Um, all right, and then the last bit he says is that um, the best way to phrase the claim is to say that everything supervenes either on the physical or the, or the phenomenal or some combination of the two. So that, that includes consciousness. You, you can't get rid of that. If you want to explain everything, you can't get rid of that. Okay, he says, uh, in areas where there are epistemological problems, that's just a big word that has to do with knowledge, you know, our theory of knowledge. So in areas where there are problems with knowledge, there is an accompanying failure of supervenience. Most obviously, there is an epistemological problem about consciousness, the problem of other minds. He says, this problem arises because it seems logically compatible with all the external evidence that beings around us are conscious, and it is logically compatible that they aren't. We have no way to peek inside a dog's brain, for instance, and observe the presence or absence of conscious experience. Okay, so the problem of other minds is interesting. So this, this goes way back to Descartes, um, who said, I think, therefore I am. So Descartes got to a point where he said, look, I can't, I can be skeptical about everything, but I can't be skeptical about the fact that I'm thinking. That, that I know for sure, because it's, because it's all, I, all I know. It's all I know for sure. But that, you can't, you don't have that same certainty with other people, right? You look around, you see other people, you imagine that they're conscious like you, but that could be an illusion. You don't have any way of verifying that. You know, everybody, this could be the you know, the matrix simulation, let's say, and everybody around you that you think is conscious is not. So that's a possibility. It's always a possibility, and that's the problem of, of other minds that he brings up. And the interesting bit here is that he's saying, look, it's completely logical to imagine that everyone around you that you think is conscious is, but it's also equally logical 
that they aren't. And there's not really any way for you to know the difference. So that's interesting. All right, and then he, he asks a question here. He says, question, why doesn't a simul similar argument force us to the conclusion that if conscious experience fails to supervene, then we can't know about even our own consciousness? So, right, if I, if I can't know about other people's minds, that they're conscious, what about mine? Then he answers that. He says, because conscious experience is at the very center of our epistemic universe. He says, non-supervenient facts would be out of our direct epistemic reach. There is no such problem with our own consciousness. All right, so if we're talking about something that doesn't supervene on the physical, that doesn't depend on the physical laws, and he's saying consciousness is you know, potentially one of those things, maybe the only one. He said, things that don't supervene on the physical are kind of outside of our reach. You know, what we have access to, what we can touch and sense and smell and test, all that stuff is physical and supervenes on the physical, depends on those physical laws. Consciousness isn't like that, but it's not out of reach. At least in the, in the instance of our own consciousness, it's not out of reach. That's the thing that we're experiencing all the time. It's the thing that we are, conscious. So we have a direct experience of it. It's non-supervenient, but not out of reach. So that's an interesting interesting thing. You don't, you don't have the same certainty with other minds, but you do with yours. And he says, there are some other uh, epistemological problems that in a sense precede these because they concern the existence of the physical facts themselves. There is Descartes' problem about the existence of the external world. So Descartes would say the external world might be an illusion. Could be. You know, it's not outside of the realm of possibility. And so Chalmers says, it is compatible with our experiential evidence that the world we think we are seeing does not exist. Perhaps we are hallucinating, or our brains in vats. So that's something that philosophers say a bunch, of, just, just kind of the same as the matrix analogy. So imagine you're a brain in a vat, and all of your experiences are being shot into your brain with chemicals and electrical signals. How would you know that, that that's what's happening? You would think it's real, just like... You think it's real now, so how do you know the difference? So that was the, that was the point Descartes brought up. And Chalmers says, This problem can be seen to arise precisely because the facts about the external world do not supervene on the facts about our experience. I'll say that again. The facts about the external world do not depend on the facts of our experience. That's interesting. Well, we talked about that a little bit already. It's the idea that uh, what you're experiencing doesn't necessarily reflect what reality is. Kyle and I have talked about this a bunch, trying to understand what objective reality might be. We all know that we're very different, uh, you know, biologically very different. Um, we see and smell and sense and feel things, not, not identically, but differently, because of we have different biology and different psychology. So even if that was the only thing that differed, our experiences would be considerably different. If I could tap into your head and see how you see the world and how you experience things, it wouldn't be exactly the same as mine. So there's some level of illusion going on, and we just don't know how how large that level is. Descartes said it could be it could be everything. Everything you experience could be a, a hallucination. Um, everything you're experiencing could be ones and zeros in the matrix, except for the fact of your own thinking. Chalmers would say, except for your consciousness, your consciousness. He says, 
all our sources of external evidence supervene on the microphysical facts, so that insofar as some phenomenon does not supervene on those facts, external evidence can give us no reason to believe in it. This leaves phenomenon that we have internal evidence for, namely conscious experience, and that is all. Except for conscious experience, all phenomena are supervenient on the physical. Okay. Okay, fair enough. So we haven't, we haven't seen a tremendous amount of evidence for this claim, but it makes sense to me that, uh, that there's no way of, an, of analyzing consciousness and reductively explaining it like we can anything else. It doesn't seem to be like anything else. And Chalmers is saying that's because it's completely separate and apart from the laws that govern physical reality. Okay, Jesus, I mean, that's, that takes us... That, that statement takes us back thousands of years into, into you know, philosophy. It takes us way, way back to the mind-body problem. You know, scientists trying to, trying to ask and answer the question, is your mind and body one thing? Are they separate things? Is this some kind of a dualism? What's going on? You know, we go back even further into the religious dimension. You know, ancient, ancient times. Yeah, the, even those people talked about the soul or the spirit or the anima. And that's different from the physical body. It's something else. What is it? So this is what Chalmers is calling consciousness. All right, he goes on. He says, One can note that a certain physical quality causes red experiences and can explain the causal relation between the quality and red judgments. It is just the final step to experience that goes unexplained. So this is, we, we, this is an example we mentioned already, the experience of the color red. He's like, look, it's, it's, you know, for sure, something physical that causes this quality that we call red. You can explain the cause and effect, you can explain the optics, you can explain all of that. But what you haven't explained is the experience of red. So that step goes unexplained. You can explain everything physical, and yet you still can't explain the experience itself. He says the same goes for phenomena such as heat, light, and sound. They involve a relation to conscious experience. Heat is the thing that causes heat sensations. Light causes visual experiences, and so on. So you can explain heat and light and sound on the basis of moving molecules or vibration patterns, you know, all that stuff. You can talk about that, and you would go no further in explaining what a heat sensation is, what a visual experience is. Yeah, light's involved, you know, and molecules are involved, but you, knowing everything physical about them, you still cannot explain even one bit why those vibrations cause an experience at all. Okay, he says, other properties depend even more directly on conscious experience. Mental properties, such as love and belief, have a conceptual dependence on the existence of conscious experience. If so, then in a world without consciousness, such properties would not be exemplified. So that's interesting. Just saying something he said before in another way, talking about love and now talking about belief as being things that are mental properties that exist within consciousness. So if you had a world where, hypothetically, there was no consciousness, you wouldn't have love. You wouldn't have belief. 
So there's a dependence here on some things that we say exist. I don't think anybody would argue that love exists or that belief exists. They're a fact, but you can't explain those facts on the basis of physical laws alone. They don't supervene on the physical. All right, he says physical laws are not supervenient on physical facts. Here's, a, here's, a, here's a one I wanted to point out. He says, It seems to me that there is something irreducible in the existence of laws and causation. The very existence of such irreducible facts raises deep questions about their metaphysical nature. It is not unnatural to speculate that these two non-supervenient kinds, consciousness and causation, may have a close metaphysical relation. All right, so this is quite the statement from a philosopher who's trying to avoid uh, any sort of religious talk. So he's saying now that physical laws, we can't reduce them any further. We get down to the nitty-gritty quantum mechanics, the laws that cause gravity and matter and everything that, that we know that exists. When we get down to those things, he says, they are not supervenient on the physical facts. Well, that makes sense because they're below the physical facts. They're the things the physical facts come from. Um, he, he says then that they're irreducible. So they're, you know, we, can't, we can't provide um, a reductive explanation for physical laws because there's nothing smaller. There's nothing constituent. They're, they're, they're the, the most fundamental thing. So how do we do that? He says we can't. So, so then we put, can put these physical laws in the same category as consciousness and say those are the two things that we simply cannot explain. That's amazing. It, it almost makes you wonder if consciousness and the physical laws of the universe are not different things at all, but one thing, the thing I would call God. I mean, that makes perfect sense to me. And then he says that the fact that they're not supervenient on the physical raises questions about their metaphysical nature. What does that mean? That means he can't explain it, and logic is leading you down a mystic path here is leading you down a path of magic and religion and the un scientifically, scientifically unexplainable. And this is his way of admitting it, kind of glossing over it, but admitting it. It's interesting. And then he says, to put the matter differently, we can say that the facts about the world are exhausted by one, particular physical facts, two, facts about conscious experience, and three, the laws of nature. These are the three things you need to explain everything. You can't just explain everything using the physical facts. As much as science might like to say that, it can't be done. Because it doesn't explain consciousness, and it doesn't explain the laws of nature. Alright. This next section is called, Can Consciousness Be Reductively Explained? Well, I think he's already said no, but let's see what he has to add here, because this is where we're going to get into the zombie analogy. All right, he says, No explanation given wholly in physical terms can ever account for the emergence of conscious experience. To make the case against a reductive explanation, we need to show that all the microphysical facts in the world do not entail facts about consciousness. Okay, makes sense to me. Uh, consciousness doesn't supervene on the physical, so that's what we need to prove. He says, The most obvious way to investigate the supervenience of consciousness to consider the logical possibility of a zombie. 
someone or something physically identical to me, but lacking conscious experience altogether. So this is his definition of a zombie, something that's physically identical to him, but doesn't have conscious experience. So you might think of that as like an artificially intelligent robot, you know, like like iRobot or something, if you remember that, remember that Will Smith movie. Um, something like that. It looks like a human, it acts like a human, it, it's, can, it can be programmed sophisticatedly to do all kinds of crazy things, everything you can imagine, to show empathy, to, um, you know, to uh, display anger where, it, where it's appropriate. Like it, everything, is, it's programmed to the T, to be like a human being. So it looks and acts exactly like you'd expect, but it doesn't have conscious experience. There's nothing behind its eyeballs except for data processing and, uh, you know, whatever, whatever. I'm, you know, this be, it's, it's over my head. Just, just imagine that. We're going to talk about this in terms of a zombie, but you can think about it like an AI robot if you want to. All right, he says, so let's consider my zombie twin. He says, to fix ideas, we can imagine that right now I am gazing out the window experiencing some nice green sensations from seeing trees outside, having pleasant taste experiences through munching on a chocolate bar, and feeling a dull, aching sensation in my right shoulder. What's going on in my zombie twin? He will certainly be identical to me functionally. He will be processing the same sort of information, reacting in a similar way to inputs, and with indistinguishable behavior resulting... He will be perceiving the trees outside in a functional sense and tasting the chocolate. He will be awake, able to report the contents of his internal states, able to focus attention in various places, and so on. It is just that none of this functioning will be accompanied by any real conscious experience. There will be no phenomenal feel. There is nothing it is like to be a zombie. And here's the good part. He says, a zombie is just something physically identical to me, but which has no conscious experience. All is dark inside. All is dark inside. That's, that's it. That's it right there. That's the hard problem of consciousness. If I've got me and my AI double, and I'm experiencing all these things, um, doing all these things, my AI double is doing all the same things. The difference between him and I is that I have an experience of it. And he does not. To him, it's all dark inside. So how do you explain the light inside of me? That's the hard problem. All right, Chalmers says, We can support the claim that zombies are logically possible by considering the pattern of causal organization embodied in the mechanisms responsible for my behavior, which can, in principle, be realized in all sorts of strange ways. Um, so I, I said that they might be programmable, but he goes on. He says, we can make a similar point by considering my silicon isomorph. That Now this is not his zombie twin. Now this is his silicon twin. He says, who is organized like me, but who has silicon chips where I have neurons. It follows that the existence of my conscious experience is not logically entailed by the facts about my functional organization. So consciousness fails to supervene on the physical. So what he's saying here basically is that we can duplicate the structure of the brain in, in artificial intelligence, let's say, and it would still be unable to produce conscious experience. It's not about the structure, right? 
There's something more. It's not about the neurons. You can, you can make fake neurons out of silicon and make them function like a brain functions. And you, and you get all the behavior that you would expect to get, or you can get all the behavior you would expect to get. And it's still dark inside. He says, consciousness is a surprising feature of the universe. This is another one of those statements he says that borders on the religious. So listen to this. He says, consciousness is a surprising feature of the universe. Our grounds for belief in consciousness derive solely from our own experience of it. Even if we knew every last detail about the physics of the universe, that information would not lead us to postulate the existence of conscious experience. It is my first-person experience of consciousness that forces the problem on me. And this is, this is great. I mean, this is something that, that Heidegger would have said. Um, he, he's basically saying here that uh, if, you were, if you were designing uh, you know, an imitation of the world, if you, if you were able to design and create out of whatever, something that functions like the world and creatures that function like we do, you, you could potentially build all of that if you had the, the, the level of science and technology that you needed. You could potentially do that. And if you did, you could get a world that functions just like ours. And you would have absolutely no reason to believe that the creatures in that world are conscious. That would be a surprise to you if that, if that turned out to be the true. So consciousness, he says, is, it, it doesn't follow from any of the structure or functioning of biology or, or physics or anything else. It's surprising. All right, he says, one could determine all the facts about biological function, about human behavior and the brain uh, mechanisms, but nothing in this vast causal story would lead one who had not experienced it directly to believe that there should be any consciousness. The very idea would be unreasonable, almost mystical. So Chalbers said the very idea of consciousness would be unreasonable. It doesn't flow from the data. It doesn't seem logical. Then he says, almost mystical. How about fully mystical, bro? How about fully mystical? Almost mystical. I mean, come on. So to tiptoe around mystical is funny. Almost mystical. You, you know what you mean, David. You mean it's, it's completely unexpected. It's, it's completely without explanation. And that is mystical. He says, there is an epistemic asymmetry in our knowledge of consciousness that it is not present in our knowledge of other phenomena. So remember, epistemic means theory of knowledge. So he said there's an, there's an asymmetry in our knowledge about consciousness. And what that means is we have knowledge about it in a way we don't have knowledge of anything else. We're always fundamentally aware of our own consciousness. That's not the case with objects outside that I'm not experiencing right now. It's always the case with our consciousness, though. It's completely fundamental. All right, he says, The point can also be made by pointing to the problem of other minds. Even when we know everything physical about other creatures, we do not know for certain that they are conscious or what their experiences are. The asymmetry in knowledge of consciousness makes it clear that consciousness cannot logically supervene. A logical supervenient property can be detected straightforwardly on the basis of external evidence. There is no special role for the first-person case. No collection of facts about complex causation in physical systems adds up to a fact about consciousness. 
Mic drop. Absolutely. So if things supervene on the physical, again, he's saying that they should be straightforwardly able to to analyze that from the outside. You look at something from the outside. Um, That's true for everything. That's how you analyze everything. That's how you experience everything. Except for your consciousness. That's not straightforwardly evident from the outside. That's what. That's why he's referring to the problem of other minds. You can't tell by looking at somebody 100% certainly that they are conscious. All you can say is that they seem to be. All right, he says, Imagine that we are living in an age of a completed neuroscience, where we know everything there is to know about the physical processes within our brain responsible for behavior. And he's going to give an example. This is just a thought experiment. He says, Mary has been brought up in a black and white room and has never seen any colors except black, white, and shades of gray. She is nevertheless one of the world's leading neuroscientists specializing in the neurophysiology of color vision. She knows everything there is to know about the neural processes involved in visual information processing about the physics of optical processes, and about the physical makeup of objects in the environment. But she does not know what it is like to see red. No amount of reasoning from the physical facts alone will give her this knowledge. It follows that facts about the subjective experience of color vision are not entailed by the physical facts. Another mic drop moment. So this is a great thought experiment. She's saying, assuming we get to this point in the future where we literally know everything there is to know about color vision, a scientist who know who has all of that information at her disposal but has never seen red cannot tell you what the red experience is like, even though she can tell you everything about how it works. So there is a gap, what, what Chalmers calls an explanatory gap. All right, he goes on. He says, When she sees red for the first time, Mary is discovering something about the way the world is. It seems clear that the knowledge she is gaining is knowledge of a fact. So let me put that a different way. Remember, Mary's supposed to know everything there is to know about about color vision. Everything about colors and the neural processes in the brain that process it, about everything. She knows all of that, but she's never seen red before. So the first time she sees red... She learns something new. So wait a minute. Didn't Mary know everything there is to know about the neuroscience of, of color vision? Everything? Well, she did. She, she knew everything. Except knowledge that you can only get from experience. That, that is, the, is the key. That is the crux of it right there. Mary is learning something new about red the first time she experiences it. Something above and beyond the physical she knew all that stuff already. And there's no denying it. When Mary sees red for the first time, you know it, I know it. She experiences it differently than reading about it in a book. She understands it differently than modeling it in the brain. She knows something that she didn't know before. That's amazing. All right, he says, To analyze consciousness in terms of some functional notion is either to change the subject or to define away the problem. So he's saying if all you're doing is looking at consciousness in terms of what it does, that you're, you're not really answering the problem of what it is, which is a really interesting point. He says, one might as well define world peace as a ham sandwich. 
achieving world peace becomes much easier, but it is a hollow achievement. And this is what he thinks science has done to date, trying to understand consciousness. They've turned consciousness, they've turned world peace into a ham sandwich, and they're trying to describe what consciousness does and not what it is. All right, so back to Chalmers. He says, does a mouse have beliefs? Do bacteria learn? Is a computer virus alive? It all depends on how we draw the boundaries. But compare. Does a mouse have conscious experience? Does a virus? These are not matters for stipulation. Either there is something it's like to be a mouse, or there is not. And it is not up to us to define the mouse's experience into or out of existence. It follows that the notion of consciousness cannot be functionally analyzed. It's not about what it does. It's about what it is. And there's a difference. That's a great way of putting it. You know, does a mouse have beliefs versus does a mouse have conscious experience? You might say yes or no to the first question, but you can't say anything to the second question. It's not within the realm of possibility. All right, he says... Once we have explained all the physical structure in the vicinity of the brain, and we have explained how all the various brain functions are performed, there is a further explanandum, consciousness itself. Why should all this structure and function give rise to experience? He says the physical process does not say. That's exactly right. You can understand everything physically going on, but it still doesn't explain why all of that functioning comes along with an experience of it. Now, I've offered an explanation in, in some of my more um, hippy-dippy talk about God as to why that might be, um, so you guys can go back and listen to that, uh, but there's just a little bit more here to push through. Um, this section's called Appeal to New Physics. He says, Almost all existing proposals concerning the use of physics to explain consciousness focus on the most puzzling part of physics, namely quantum mechanics. He says, this is understandable. For physics to explain consciousness would take something extraordinary, and quantum mechanics is by far the most extraordinary part of contemporary physics. But in the end, it does not seem to be extraordinary enough. He says, the most frequently noted connection between consciousness and quantum mechanics lies in the fact that on some interpretations... Measurement by a conscious observer is required to bring about the collapse of the wave function. On this sort of interpretation, consciousness plays a central role in the dynamics of the physical theory. These interpretations are highly controversial, but in any case, it is notable that they do nothing to provide an explanation of consciousness. Rather, they simply assume the existence of consciousness and use it to help explain physical phenomena. I think that's spot on. I, I do really like the idea uh, that Niels Bohr brought up way back when, uh, in the 20s and 30s, about, about measuring um, measurements causing this um, particle wave duality to collapse. It's like things are not, um, you know, on the quantum level, things are not a particle or a wave. Um, when you measure them, then they become something certain, and it becomes uh, you know, something that's, that's there. But when it's not being measured, it's not exactly there anymore. It's sort of everywhere all at once. You know, that's how they look at, at electrons. Um, 
And so there is a, there's a role that consciousness seems to play in, as Neil Bohr put it, collapsing the wave function, taking something that exists in a state of potential and, and making it exist in the here and now with certainty. Um, I think that's really interesting, and it has, some, it has some theological implications. It has some implications on how you understand God, and I really love that. But Chalmers is making a good point, that that doesn't explain consciousness. It uses consciousness to explain certainty and, and reality. Uh, it ex- it explain it uses consciousness to explain how something comes from nothing, let's say. But it doesn't explain consciousness. It takes consciousness as a given. Um, okay, and then the last bit of this, he says, one cannot rule out the possibility that quantum mechanics will play a key role in a theory of consciousness. For example, consciousness will re- will perhaps turn out to be associated with certain fundamental physical properties or with certain configurations of those properties. But all the same, there is little hope that this sort of theory will provide a wholly physical explanation of consciousness. So he's ruling out even the, you know, the most promising and flexible uh, realm of physics, this quantum mechanics, that even that is capable of providing an explanation for consciousness. And lastly, he wants to take a look at the evolutionary argument, because most scientists are going to lean on this a little bit. And he says, Even those who take consciousness seriously are often drawn to the idea of an evolutionary explanation of consciousness. It seems that it must have arisen during the evolutionary process for a reason. It is natural to suppose that it arose because there is some function that it serves that could not be achieved without it. Unfortunately, the process of natural selection cannot distinguish between me and my zombie twin. Evolution selects properties according to their functional role, and my zombie twin performs all the functions that I perform just as well as I do. It follows that evolution alone cannot explain why conscious creatures, rather than zombies, evolved. For an explanation of consciousness, then, we must look elsewhere. The possibility of explaining consciousness non-reductively remains open. So that's how, that's how part two is going to have to wrap up. David Chalmers is opening up the possibility that there may be an explanation for consciousness that doesn't rely on the physical, that isn't reductively uh, explained, something else. Okay, so unlike the argument of determinism which touched on at the start of this discussion, Chalmers' parallel argument for consciousness seems the stronger of the two. While both still seem unknowable in some ways, Chalmers has at least undermined all the various counter-arguments that would suggest that consciousness is not a special case or that it's not deserving of a deeper explanation. We can say with some certainty that consciousness doesn't supervene on, on the physical laws of nature, It is something more, something other. Since this otherness requires us to look elsewhere, to look beyond the physical for an explanation, I am beginning to think we're heading into a mystic waters, or at least into non-physical waters. Chalmers has promised us a non-reductive explanation, so passing the ball back to you, sir. What you got for us? Well, there you have it. 
That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work. Thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode.